Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, or in the sermon booklets. If you still want one of those, there's some out on the table in the foyer. If you are new to Cornerstone, or last Sunday was your first Sunday here, we have been working through a, we have been working through a series in the book of 1 and will be 2 Thessalonians. I'm looking at Paul's instructions to this young church, and in particular, how, they, how Paul is calling them to live and to grow in relationship with one another. In the last couple of weeks, we have seen how Paul has called and encouraged the church to grow in holiness, that is, to grow in what it means to be all that God has made us to be, to grow in our relationship with God and to grow in knowledge of God and how that manifests itself in very practical ways and such as our sexual conduct and our work and in death and anticipation of death, as Paul identifies in particular in chapter 4. He's also encouraged us about the nature of the church family, that we as Christians are bound together as a family, and he uses this word of brother love, brotherly love, as the characteristic that describes or should describe the relationship between one Christian and another, to encourage one another, to be committed to one another, to build one another up. And here, in, this, in these few verses in chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, the Apostle Paul is giving specific instructions for the church family and how they are to live as a community in peace with one another. Please follow along with me as I read chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask for you to send your spirit into our hearts. For without it, Lord, we cannot understand your word. So, Lord, we ask that your spirit would make us attentive to these truths, that your grace and your truth would be manifested in our lives and in our church community. We do pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, the idea of community is a buzzword, and it's especially a buzzword in Christian circles. When it comes to community, people want to experience community. Churches want to cultivate community. Indeed, we ourselves, you know, one of our core values is that we are an authentic community, a place where we grow in love with towards one another, where you can take off the mask and be real and support and encourage one another. But sometimes the reality of community and the results of community are not what is desired. Is that inevitably conflicts arise, personalities clash, agendas, whether real or perceived, are exposed and people are hurt. And if you have this kind of experience that is messy with Christian community, you say, wait a second, this is not what I signed up for. And sometimes what happens is that one community dissolves to form another community, and the same problems arise and the same patterns arise. As one of my esteemed brothers on the session likes to say, you know, wherever you go, there you are. 
Now, whatever problems you had in one place, then when you go and you bring those problems with you. And if they're your problems, wherever you go, there you are with those problems again. But what happens here is within the mess of community and the challenge of community is that it, the, the, real, the, the, the desires that we want, the experience that we desire, are oftentimes far from the reality of what it is in our own lives. One thing that we need to understand as we go into this passage is something about the nature of community itself, is that for us and for most Americans and most people in our community, is that we conceive of community on the basis of our experience. We talk about community in terms of what it feels like. Does it feel like I have a community? But biblically, community is not based on our experience. It's not based upon our emotions, but it is based upon our re- our identity as Christians in Jesus Christ. That our community, that we are a community, that this church is a community because we are bound together by our faith in Jesus Christ, not by our experience of what community feels like. And indeed, it is that common thread that we are bound together by our faith in Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters who share the same Heavenly Father. That, ex- that reality of being bound together, it is that truth, that thread that makes the experience of community even possible. It's a lot like a family, that in your family, the sense of being a family doesn't make you a family. But rather, what makes you a family is that you are bound together by blood or you're bound together by a family name. And it is that thread of your family name that binds you together and even makes the experience of family, which most people want, it makes that possible. So too, for the church and for the community within the church, is that we are bound together by the thread of our faith in Jesus Christ, and it is that foundation which makes the experience of community possible as well. Now, why does, <coughs> why does that matter? Because here in this passage, the Apostle Paul is giving instructions based upon the thread that ties us together, based upon the reality that we are a community. And his encouragement with these very specific instructions is that because we are a community, that we would live as a community. Indeed, that we would even grow and experience the joy of community in relationship with one another. And he gives some very practical instructions how to do so. Paul addresses two different sets of relationships. One, he addresses between leaders, pastors, and the congregation. And then secondly, he addresses relationships between congregation members one to another. And those are the two sets that we'll look at here this morning in this passage. To begin with, Paul addresses the relationship between leaders, pastors, and the congregation and the members of those churches. Now, there is a tension that has existed throughout history for churches and for Christians. And the tension is that people have, churches and Christians have gone between two equally unbiblical extremes. And one extreme in relationship between a church members and their pastor in particular is to put elders and leaders on pedestals, to give them an exaggerated deference. Indeed, a colleague of mine who is a pastor in a uh, in a non-English speaking congregation, is that he, he said one of the challenges within the church was he said the pastor was treated as, as almost as like a demigod. And he was revered with this exaggerated deference that went towards the pastor. 
And sometimes what happens in those churches and oftentimes happens is that the, that ministry and leadership and authority is bound in the pastor, that there's not really any space given for others to develop their God-given, God-given gifts. Sometimes the way that it looks like in churches more like ours is that there's an over-professionalization of the ministry, that only legitimate ministry is done if a pastor or if an ordained person or an elder is involved in that ministry. So one extreme is to put them up on a pedestal. The other extreme, which is more prevalent in our culture, I would say, is not putting them up on a pedestal, but completely disregarding the role of church leaders. And where this often begins in Christian communities is with a teaching on the body of Christ from 1 Corinthians 12. The teaching that every member, we're all a part of the body, every member is valuable, every member is unique and distinct, and, and distinct, and that's absolutely true. But people take that and press it further and say, well, therefore then, pastors, clergies, elders, leaders, church leadership are redundant and unnecessary. And the way that's, that's commonly expressed is people say things like this, why do I need the church? I mean, I can have a relationship with God without going to church. I mean, I'm an independent person, and I, I certainly don't need to be under anybody else. I mean, I can talk to God myself. And as a friend of mine commented to me this week, he said, I don't feel like I need to answer to any manly organization in order to have a relationship with God. And the idea is that what's the matter is that church leaders are irrelevant. They're, they're not needed. to disregard it altogether. In conservative Christian circles, where this idea gets expressed a bit more, is in the idea where people say, particularly with promoting family leadership, and the idea is saying, I am as a man, I am the head of my household, I am the high priest of my home, and therefore as the high priest of my home, I provide all of the shepherding that I need, and that our family needs, and I am the authority in that. Anyone else who's an elder or leadership in the church is disregarded. And those that hold to these positions disregard and overlook the New Testament teaching that Jesus, who is the chief shepherd, delegates and entrusts the care of believers to under-shepherds and to pastors. We see this in particular in Acts chapter 20, 28, and we'll tie it back into 1 Thessalonians in a moment. Paul, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, as the last time that he is going to be with them, Paul, in his discourse, states this to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, look at this verse. How did these elders become overseers? By the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And notice he even uses the term overseer, that they are to oversee something. Not only that, but he says what the specific charge that they have is to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And that serves as a double corrective. It serves as a corrective to leaders who would be abusive in their power to say, wait a second, Jesus is entrusting you entrusting you the spiritual care of people who he purchased with his own blood. That is a great privilege and responsibility. And at the same time, there is also an authority that is being given to these elders and subsequently through the New Testament. That there is a God-given charge, a God-given position, a God-given authority, a God-given responsibility to care for those that Jesus has purchased with his own blood. That Jesus' death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, his resurrection from the grave to give us new life, his spirit working within us. But we don't see Jesus. 
And so to provide a tangible way to care for the body and to care for believers, Jesus has passed on to his church, leaders, elders, pastors, to care for the church which Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood. So there is this tension that we can go from one extreme of of turning pastors into demigods and at the other side disregarding them and other church leaders, elders, elders, and deacons altogether. Now, here in this passage, we don't know the specific issue that Paul is dealing with in Thessalonica, but Paul clarifies what leaders do and how congregation members should respond to those leaders. He describes it clearly in this verse. He says in verse 12, He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Well, what is the role of the leaders of a church? Well, number one, he says, those who labor among you. This comes from the word here is typically used in scripture and in Greek culture of manual occupations. It means to toil, to strive, to struggle, to grow even weary in doing so. There's even, it conjures up images of rippling muscles that are pouring off sweat and the sweat pouring off rippling muscles. An image that you are confronted with every week during these 30 minutes, I know. (laughs) And Paul also uses it to describe his apostolic labors and the hard work of advancing the gospel of those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, certainly, there are those that abuse, who, there are certainly those who are pastors and those who are leaders who are lazy, who think it's unreasonable to have any expectations upon them, to be, who think it's unreasonable to be held accountable or to be held or expected to be productive in their work. But the biblical picture as those who labor and toil among you. Paul uses the term to describe his own calling in Colossians 1.29 when he says, For this I toil, same word, for this I labor, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. And if someone is in ministry and this is not their attitude, quite frankly, they should not be in ministry. Period. They shouldn't be there. They're in the wrong calling or they need to correct themselves and to do what God's calling them to. So the first role that he identifies is those who labor among you. Second identification for those who are leaders is that who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Picking up on that overseer type term. Now the first thing to say about church leadership is that, as Jesus taught, is that the first thing about church leadership is that you are under people as servants rather than over them as Lord. As Jesus taught in Mark chapter chapter 5. And that the characteristics are humility, not totalitarianism. They're meekness, not expressions of power. Yet, what Jesus identifies, and also what Paul identifies here in this passage, is that servant leaders of the church do carry a delegated authority. They are entrusted with a real authority. In fact, the same verb that's used here as over you in the Lord is used of fathers in managing their own household. And the characteristic of that is a real and entrusted authority. So, those are those who, are, who labor among you. Two, are over you in the Lord. And thirdly, they are those who admonish you. This definition for admonish is to warn against bad behavior, to give corrective reproof. Typically, Paul uses this as admonish and teach. 
that is a corrective reproof and positive instruction. And so John Stott, the great scholar, gives great insight into this passage. He ties these ideas together of what Paul is teaching. He says, Paul's pictures of leaders within the church is that they are a distinct group of leaders, that there are a distinct group of leaders who are over the congregation in the Lord, who are entrusted with pastoral oversight and care, who are expected to work hard in serving them, and that these pastors are not meant to monopolize ministries but to multiply them. Given that, what attitude should a local congregation have towards its leaders? He continues, he says, neither to despise them as if they were dispensable, nor to flatter or fawn on them as if they were popes or princes. But rather, as Paul says here, to respect them. In fact, the word Paul uses is to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because of their work. Because they have been entrusted with a real responsibility and authority and are accountable to the Lord for that. There is a significant aspect where this is a positional respect. That our parents are deserve honor and respect, no matter how bad of parents they are, they deserve honor and respect because they are our parents. That the President of the United States deserve honor and respect because he is the President of the United States. And regardless of what you think of him personally, if you walk into the Oval Office, you say, hello, Mr. President, because there is a positional respect that is, that is appropriate there. And Paul says to respect them because of their work. Now, at the church in Thessalonica, this was a particularly remarkable charge because the church was probably less than a year old. And already, God had called and equipped some to be leaders and elders in this church. So you have young Christians who are in this position in a new church. Now, one of the challenges that occurs, particularly in church plants, is that a church plant begins usually usually with a, a pastor going to start a church or a group of people gathering together to form a Bible study that they want to be a church. And when they get to the point where they're going to become an official church, they organize and they elect leaders for those congregations. And sometimes one of the tensions in church plants is that certain people who want to be leaders don't become leaders. And that's what's happened here in the church in Thessalonica. It's a little bit like in your own workplace, if you have a peer who is promoted to a position of authority over their other peers. There's often a struggle associated with that because everyone else is saying, wait a second, why does that person get the promotion and I don't? I know more than they do, and there's a tension that goes along with that. And so that dynamic being present in the church in Thessalonica, Paul gives them this charge. He says, listen, esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because of their work because of what has been entrusted to them and the responsibility that they bear and the accountability to God that they're going to have to answer. And ultimately, Paul is saying, in the relationship between leaders and congregation members, this dynamic helps you to be at peace among yourself. Paul now shifts from the dynamic between members and leaders to the dynamic between congregation members one to another and the responsibility towards one another and what Christian community looks like And the challenges of it. He begins with this admonition in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
Paul gives this encouragement. He says, but we urge you, brothers. He's not speaking to the leaders. He's speaking to the congregation members. And he calls them brothers, and he says, do these things, admonish, encourage, help. Verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. A charge to the congregation members. That there, that there is a responsibility laid upon congregation members and members of a church to care for each other, to support one another, to encourage, to admonish, to ensure that each other is following the teachings of Christ. And notice the group that he says this to. Those admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one. He is saying the whole life of the Christian church and of our community as being members of the family of God, that we need to be encouraging one another. And this responsibility is laid upon, not the leaders, it is in other passages of Scripture, but laid upon the members of the church in their relationship to one another. The existence of pastors and leaders and elders and deacons does not relieve nor alleviate the responsibility of congregation members one to another to care, to encourage, to exhort, to admonish, and to help one another in their spiritual journey. It's a responsibility of one to another. Paul then gives some very specific instructions how they're to do so. He gives an overarching summary when he says, be patient with them all. Well, who is the all? tells you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. That this group of people are people who have challenges and struggles in their understanding of the Christian faith. They are people who struggle in their faith and actually believing what they claim to believe. They're people who are struggling in their Christian conduct and not doing what they're supposed to be doing. In particular, when he says, admonish the idle, as we looked at several weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 4, It's referring to those who can work but don't work and are mooching off the generosity of other Christians. And he says, warn them. Christians one to another, warn them. And he says, encourage the faint-hearted. That would be those who were anxious about death and about suffering and about what happened to those who died, as we saw also in chapter 4. He says, help the weak. In particular, that would be those reference to those who were morally weak. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that would be those who are finding, who are not having self-control in their sexual conduct. And Paul, I'm sorry, scholars note that the word that Paul uses here to help the weak is to hold on to them, to cling to them, even to put your arm around them and to help the weak. And then he gives one more charge. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's an allusion there to Jesus' own teaching, not to repay evil for evil. He's saying, listen, personal revenge and retaliation are forbidden to followers of Jesus. Yes, pursue justice, but that is different than revenge and retaliation. Instead, seek to do good to one another and to everyone, to one another, to other brothers and sisters, and to Christian, which includes possibly those who are persecuting them. Now, Let's take this teaching here and give some more tangible application to this for us. If you have been a Christian long enough, or not long, very very long at all, it is quite likely that you have been irritated at some point by another Christian. It's quite likely that you have come to the point and said, golly, I can't believe that that person treated me like that, and they say that they're a Christian. I can't believe that that person, and that person's a member of this church. I can't believe that they would do that to me. 
a unique experience, I'm sure, that no one else has had. And Paul's urging here is he's saying, listen, if you've been a Christian long enough, there are going to be challenges in the experience of community. And this, in fact, is a part of the very aspect of community, of this long-suffering that goes towards one another. He says, listen, there are going to be some times when you are going to be irritated that other people don't understand what you think they should understand at this point in their Christian life. They should be somewhere else. They should have more understanding. Those would be the idol in this particular context. He said, listen, there are going to be people in your life where you you are just going to quite simply get sick of. You're like, I'm just so sick of that person. Why? Because their conduct is not what you think their conduct should be at this point or someone that is a Christian or someone who is a member of a church such as this. It would be that you get, that you look down at people for what you perceive to be a lack of faith for what you think somebody else should be beyond that at this point or at least be where you are. It's quite possible that through your time and experience in Christian community that you are irritated because some people are difficult, others are demanding, some have disappointed you or continually disappoint you, and quite frankly, some are argumentative and, and just rude. And Paul's admonition to the reality of the struggles of broken and sinful people living in community with broken and sinful people is he says, on the contrary, be patient with them all. How do we interact with one another? We are to be patient with them all. In fact, you could say, be very patient with them all. Why? Because God is very patient with you. And the word here of patience is often used in Scripture. It's translated other times as long-suffering. It's a word that describes, that is used to describe one of the attributes of God, that God is slow to anger, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, that he is patient and loving and kind and gracious. It's an attribute of God himself. Indeed, it is one of the fruits of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, of long-suffering one with another. Indeed, patience is, is the first definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, which is read at weddings that you, many of you know so well. Love is patient. Love is kind. That that long-suffering, that that, that patience, that endurance, that commitment to journeying and persevering with one another is the very hallmark of Christian love. It's the very hallmark of our unity in how life with one another should be shared and should be experienced with each other. And as God has been patient with us, so we also are to be patient with one another and to love one another. I mean, consider the struggles in your own life. Consider the sins in your own life, which you so easily dismiss. Maybe it's your challenges with anger. Maybe it's with your overly obsessive need for control. Maybe it's with the things that you click through on the computer. And how quickly we dismiss those things. We say, oh, that's just a little problem. That's not that big of an issue. And yet with those things in our own life, consider how God graciously and lovingly and in long-suffering patience 
clearly affirms his truth and comes alongside us and helps us, and his Holy Spirit urges you on again and again and again and again and again. Consider the relationships that you have with other Christians, maybe, and you can't stand those relationships. Maybe the relationships that you, have, you yourself have given up on. Say, I'm done with that person. I'm not going to take it anymore. They shouldn't be doing da 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 They should be beyond this. That's not how they should be acting. And maybe that's all true. And so you consider the relationship that you've given up on or that you can't stand those people anymore. Would you want God to treat you the way that you treat that other person? But what we see is that, praise the Lord, is that God doesn't. And that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and gave himself up so that we who were enemies of God would be reconciled to him and would become his friends and call us his friends. That we would be adopted into his family as his beloved child. That God gave himself up. Consider this, so that people like you could be reconciled with people like you. Go figure. I mean, how remarkable. And one of the things that God does, and one of the ways that God works, for you to know his love more, is he puts difficult people in your life. Sometimes difficult people in your church, and in your small group, or in your home. And part of the reason why God puts those difficult people in your life is that in many ways that God is kind of holding up a mirror to yourself and to us so that we would have a very clear picture of the way that we act towards God and how his long-suffering and his patience and his love continues to uphold us, continues to forgive us, continues to journey with us and draw us deeper to himself. We are bound as a community of believers. And we are bound as a community, we are bound as a family, not because of our experience of community, not because of the warm fuzzies that we get when we get together, though I hope you are warm and fuzzy when we get together. (laughs) But that's not what binds us together. We're bound instead by our faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who rose from the grave and adopted us into his family. And because of that truth, we are a community and we are a family. And Paul's exhortation to us is saying, because of that reality, let us strive to live as a community. Let us strive to live as a family. Because in Christ, that is who you are. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that your grace would abound in us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see more clearly your love and your patience towards us. How you are slow to anger. How you are steadfast. How you are bounding in love. How you never say, oh, I just can't stand that person anymore. Oh, they make me sick. You never say that. And yet, when we would do that to you, Lord, you call us back to yourself through your loving kindness. And it is your mercy and your grace and your love and your patience that changes us. Lord, thank you that you love us and that you are patient with us. Thank you that you don't show us 
the depth of our sinfulness and brokenness all at once, for Lord, I would be devastated. But Lord, you are patient and long-suffering. You journey with us. You journey with me. And draw me back to yourself again and again and again and again and again and again. Lord, with that love, that mercy and grace that you have shown towards us, Lord, would you work that in us towards one another? And Father, there are some of us here who have never known that and never experienced that. The only picture of love that they've had is being whacked over the head with a two-by-four. But Lord, would your grace and mercy give a different picture that you would change us that the reality of the community that you have won and purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ here, that, Lord, that yes, that would not only be the reality, but that would also be our experience of what you are doing in our midst. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our brother. Amen. Let us continue to worship the Lord. We who were once not a people now have been called to be a people by what he has accomplished, by what he has done through the cross. Let us sing to the Lord. Please stand. Amen. 